right, take your Bibles and open them up to Revelation chapter 3 with me. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to pick one up from the welcome table over there or the uh, bookshelf over here, those black hardcover CSB Bibles. Uh, We're happy to give you one of those if you need one to take home and use that. There's a little half sheet in there that helps you dig into that, not just by yourself with other people. If you're using one of those Bibles, you'll find Revelation chapter 3 on page 1090. We're in week four of a sermon series through this apocalyptic prophetic letter that we call the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic prophetic letter, okay? We unpacked that on week one. If you want to go back and listen to that, you're welcome to on our website. Last week, we began looking at the, the letters in, within the letter, if you will, right? The letters to the seven churches where Jesus addressed each church individually, and in, in doing so, he addresses the global church as a whole It wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. We looked at the letters of the first four churches in chapter two last Sunday, and now today we're going to look at the letters to the last three churches here in chapter three. And as we continue to work our way, not only through these individual letters, but through the entire letter of Revelation, we want to keep in mind Jesus's promise from chapter one that those who listen to the words written in this book of prophecy and keep them. Those who listen, actually take that to heart, hear the words, listen to the words, and keep them will be blessed. Now, that promise began with those seven churches, but it's a promise that we can benefit from as a church today if we are willing to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I want to pray and ask for the Spirit to open our ears and help us do that, and then we'll, we'll dig into this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word that is faithful and true. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes, unplug our ears, and ready our hearts to receive in humility this word that comes from you by your spirit, and that you, through your spirit and your word, would conform us together as your church more and more into Christ's image as we grow in dependence upon him, confidence in him, and joyful obedience to what he commands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, still got your ears on, right? Now, if you weren't here last week, that might sound like a weird phrase to you. I mentioned that, that this phrase was a phrase that a friend of mine used to say anytime that we were, when we were about ready to dig into God's word together. It was his way of remembering the importance of not just reading uh, the words on the page, but actually, actually listening to them, taking them to heart, doing something with them in response, right? Obeying uh, the, the words of God in, his, uh, in the scriptures. Jesus used a similar phrase in the Gospels. We've heard this before. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen, right? Now, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, yeah, okay, we get it. Like, let's, let's keep going, right? And, and, and you're right. Uh, like, we've already heard this. You're right because I basically just took the intro from last week and copied and pasted it for this morning. But it's important for us to understand that just because we've already heard something once, that doesn't make it less important when we hear it again. Just because we've heard something once already does not make it less important when we hear it again. In fact, God often repeats the same things throughout the Bible, the whole of Scripture, precisely because we're prone to tune things out, precisely and especially when those things get more personal than we're comfortable with in our own lives. When they hit a little too close to home, 
we kind of want to go, okay, that's for somebody else, not for me. That's for these churches. That's for my husband, because let's just be honest, it's usually the husband, right? It's for all of us, isn't it? You see, Jesus knows when we have ears to hear, but we're actually unwilling to listen. You ever, like, you ever stared at somebody while they're talking to you, and you, you think that you're fooling them? Like, they're talking, and they think you're listening, and you're like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, and you're just like, you're spaced out. You can't fool Jesus. He knows when you have ears to hear, but aren't actually willing to listen. He knows when we let things go in one ear and out the other without ever taking those things to heart. He knows that we're prone to tune things out. And so, unlike me, he has infinite patience and grace. And instead of getting frustrated and walking away, huffing and puffing, he stays. And in his patient grace, he repeats himself over and over for our sake because he cares about our hearts. This is what Jesus is after. Every time we come and we open the word together, you know what that word is meant to do? It's meant to go straight to our hearts and build our affection to Jesus and not to anything else. He cares about our hearts and he wants to direct us to himself. And so in his patient grace, he repeats himself over and over and over. This morning, we're gonna hear Jesus say some uh, similar things that we heard him say last week to some of the other churches, but blessing doesn't come to us when we tune out what we've already heard. Blessing comes when we listen to what our Lord has to say yet again and take it to heart. So here's the main, message, or main thought for today, main point for today. It's exactly the same as last week because I don't know about you, I need to hear it again. Jesus knows what his church needs in order to conquer so we should listen to him when he speaks to us even when what he has to say is hard for us to hear. Jesus knows what his church needs in order to conquer, so we should listen to him when he speaks to us, even when what he has to say is hard for us to hear. Last week, we talked about a noticeable pattern in the way that Jesus addresses the church. We're not going to go back through that again today. If you want to go back and listen to that message to get that pattern down, again, you can go back to our website and and look up past sermons on there. But if you've got your ears on this morning, if you're paying attention, I think that you'll follow what Jesus is doing uh, because it's repetitive throughout. So far, we've listened to what Jesus and the Spirit had to say to the churches in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, and in Thyatira. Next up is the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Write to the angel in the church of Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. How does Jesus identify himself to this church? 
as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We learned back in chapter one that the seven spirits of God is another way of referring to the one Holy Spirit of God. Seven is a number of completion, talks about this presence of God through his spirit. And the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. By referring to himself this way, Jesus is emphasizing the life-giving supernatural power that he alone is able to provide for his church. It's important for the church in Sardis to see him this way because what does Jesus know about them? He says that they have a reputation, literally in the Greek, a name. That word's gonna be important throughout this section for being alive, but they're actually dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but, but you're not. Sardis was a very well-known and important city in its heyday. It was a city that was rich with gold, and it was a, a, had a booming clothing textile industry. At one point, it was the capital city of the Lydian Empire. It was surrounded by these steep cliffs, and it had a fortress with strong walls that made it virtually impenetrable. It had such a reputation, a name, if you will, of strength that when people spoke of doing something impossible, they, they referenced Sardis. It became a metaphor. If you did something impossible, it was like speaking of capturing Sardis. Reputation for strength. But as it turns out, it wasn't actually impossible to capture Sardis. It happened twice, once in 546 BC by Cyrus II and once in 214 BC by Antiochus III. Both times the city was captured due to not the, the walls, not the cliffs, but the failure of the watchmen on the walls to remain alert to the enemy's presence. They were sleeping on the job. They grew lethargic and the enemy snuck up both times and captured the city. They did the impossible, right? Here, Jesus is warning the church in Sardis not to make the same mistake. Like the city, the church in Sardis appears to be strong and thriving, but, but it has become lethargic, and it's about to be overrun by the spiritual enemy. Perhaps people in the church have grown apathetic because they've, they're tired of hearing the same thing. That They're tuning out the, the, the things that they hear repeated over and over and over. They've heard the, the message of the gospel over and over, but they've grown complacent of the reality of it. And here's what we need to see very clearly. When a church grows complacent of the reality of the gospel, it grows complacent, complacent in the application and the proclamation of that gospel. When it doesn't feel real anymore, we don't care about actually sharing it with anything else or anyone else because it has no effect in our own lives. A church can give the appearance of strength and health by doing a lot of ministry, can have a lot of programs, but when that church stops depending upon Jesus and his gospel, it becomes a dying or a dead church. Lord, may it never be so here. The church in Sardis has a reputation, a name for being alive, but in reality, it's knocking on death's door, Jesus says, because the church is failing to hold on to Christ's name. But in his patient grace, Jesus warns them and he tells them to wake up, to be alert and strengthen what remains. He tells them to remember the gospel that they've heard over and over. Listen, the gospel never changes. It's never gonna change. But it can change us, right? Right? That's what it's meant to do. 
Wake up. Remember the gospel that you've heard over and over and repent of your apathy toward it and toward me, Jesus is telling the church in Sardis. He's telling them to rely on him for the strength that only he can provide. You have a reputation for strength, but I'm actually the strong one. If they don't stay alert, if they try to rely on themselves, then Christ says, I'm going to come like a thief and surprise you with judgment. You have no idea. You think Cyrus II and Antiochus III caught you sleeping. No one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return in the end. He tells us this in the Gospels. But what we need to see in these, in these letters to the churches in here is that he's referring to passing judgment to specifically on the church in Sardis. Do you know that God's judgment doesn't just wait till the very end? In the book of Acts, we see that. Ananias and Sapphira, the Holy Spirit dropped them dead right there. They lied to the Holy Spirit. God enacts his judgment on the church, on his people, or, or on people that have the reputation for being alive, but are really dead. And he's warning them here. This is something that would happen, could happen in their lifetime. Otherwise, they have no reason to pay attention to this warning. If this is something that's way far off in the future, it doesn't really matter for them. They can either stay alert and watch him come to strengthen them, or they can remain apathetic and they can be caught off guard by his judgment. Didn't he also threaten to, to snuff out the lamp at Ephesus? Like, hey, you forgot your first love. If you're going to continue this way, I'm going to re remove your witness from the world. But not all of the people in Sardis are apathetic. In verse 4, Jesus says, but you have a few people, literally in the Greek, a few names, there it is again, in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. In other words, there are still some who are remaining faithful and obedient to Christ and not compromising in the idolatrous, idolatrous practices around them. Jesus essentially says, these are the ones who are actually alive. These are the ones who are actually strong because they are holding on to me, to my name. These are the ones who have fellowship with me, who will walk with me in white. These are the ones that I am purifying. These are the ones who conquer. And Jesus makes this promise in verse 5. In the same way, those who conquer, that is, those who remain alert and continue to acknowledge Jesus, his name on earth, Jesus will also acknowledge them, their name in heaven Everyone who holds on to Jesus' name in this life will find that he's written their name in uh, the book of life with permanent ink, and nothing can remove their name from that book. They'll be dressed in white clothes because they've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself, and he has made them pure and undefiled. It's Jesus that presents us spotless at the end. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does it look like for us to put our ears on and listen here and obey Christ so that we can receive the promised blessing that, that the book of Revelation offers us? Here's a few questions to help us answer that. Are you more concerned about your own reputation or about Christ's? Are you trying to make a name for yourself more than you're proclaiming the name of Jesus? Have you convinced the people around you that you're mo more devoted to Jesus than you actually are? Are there any areas of your walk with Christ in which you've grown spiritually sleepy or apathetic? 
things that you've heard over and over and you've sort of tuned out? In what areas of your life do you need to remember the gospel, repent of your sin, and cling to Jesus? How can we as a church help each other stay alert and be strengthened by Jesus so that we can continue in faithful endurance together? Listen, I need you to help me stay alert. We need each other. Let's move on to the church in Philadelphia. Verses 7 through 13. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who, hold, who opens and no one cl- will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've placed a door before you, an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is gonna come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. How does Jesus identify himself to this church? As the holy one, right? The true one. The one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. Back in chapter one, Jesus identified himself to John as the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, right? Here he's identifying himself to the church in Philadelphia as the true king who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's the, he's the promised descendant of David who reigns on the throne forever. He's the one who decides who can enter the kingdom and who cannot And nobody, nobody can override his decision. And this king has opened the door to the kingdom of heaven for the church in Philadelphia. Out of the seven churches, Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two that don't receive any words of warning from Jesus. For both of these churches, he gives only words of encouragement and yes, some words that are difficult to hear but an exhortation to endure to the end. The city of Philadelphia was an important commercial city. It was located on some major trade routes. And like we've seen with these other cities, what we're gonna see is a major theme in the book of Revelation is that the bustling commerce, the worldly system, if you will, was intertwined with idolatrous practices. In 17 AD, there was a major earthquake that devastated these two cities of Sardis and Philadelphia, And both cities received significant aid from the Roman government in order to rebuild. The financial aid was so substantial that Philadelphia was actually briefly renamed Neo-Caesarea out of gratitude to the Roman emperor for his help. Neo-Caesarea means the emperor's new city. I want you to keep that in mind. Here Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, listen, you have aid from the king of kings, from the emperor of emperors, right? The church in Philadelphia is small, it's seemingly insignificant, but it's full of faithful people. 
Reminds me a lot of Redeemer Community Church. These people may have little power, but they're holding on to Jesus with everything they've got. Why? Because they know that Jesus is holding on to them. The Jews may be able to shut the doors of the synagogue and keep these Christians out, but they can't shut the door to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has opened for this church. Nobody can stop that. Nobody can stop that. Again, Jesus calls the Jews in Philadelphia a synagogue of Satan. He called the Jews in Smyrna the same thing. In both cases, he says, these people claim to be Jews, but they're not, right? They're lying. And that's because they're descendants of Abraham by flesh, but not descendants of Abraham by faith. The Apostle Paul, who himself was a Jewish descendant of Abraham, said this in Romans 8, or Romans 2, 28 and 29. <laughs> For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and a circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. You know what Jesus, God himself, is doing here? He's praising his church. He's praising his church, the true people of God, the, the true Israel, those with circumcised hearts. And here in verse 9, Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia that they will receive what God promised Israel through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 14. This is what the Lord says, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will follow you. They will come over in chains and bow down to you. They will confess you to you. God is indeed with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. In Isaiah's prophecy, it was the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, who were bowing down to the Jews and acknowledging that God was with them. Here, Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, says that the unbelieving Jews, a.k.a. the synagogue of Satan, have taken the place of the unbelieving Gentiles in Isaiah's prophecy, and now the church made up both of believing Jews and believing Gentiles together is the true covenant people of God upon whom he has set his love. They'll come and bow down to you. I'll make them, Jesus says, and they will know that I have loved you. Verse 10, Jesus tells the Philadelphian church, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, stay with me for a minute, okay? Some people take this as a reference to believers being raptured before the great tribulation, but if we keep a couple important contextual things in mind, I think that we will see something different here. I'm not coming here to, to list a whole bunch of, a bunch of positions and argue one way or the other, I just simply want us to see what's going on in the text and draw the conclusion from that, okay? First thing we need to keep in mind is that one of the overall themes of the book of Revelation is endurance through suffering in this world, not removal from it, not removal from it. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John's gospel, John 16, 33. It's almost like a summary verse of the entire book of Revelation, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering, a.k.a. tribulation in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered. There it is again. Conquered 
the world, courageously enduring suffering to the end in this life through dependence upon Jesus Christ is what it means to conquer in the book of Revelation. God removes pain and suffering and death from the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the book. It's there. We'll get there, okay? But nowhere in here does he promise to remove believers from suffering and pain and death as long as they live on this earth, on this earth, the one that hasn't been renewed yet. He told the church in Smyrna to be faithful to the point of death. We can't overlook that. And he tells the Philadelphians here to hold on to what they have, and he commends them for keeping his command to endure, to endure. Second thing we need to remember is that John wrote this in Greek and not in English. Now, the fact that we're reading this in our native language, praise God for that, right? Some people don't have that gift. This is a gracious gift from God. It means that we don't have to be Greek scholars in order to read God's word. But sometimes, sometimes it's beneficial to understand what the author is doing in the original language. And God has also graciously given us the gift of technology, the gift of Bible study tools to help us dig deeper. I am no me, by no means a Greek scholar, but I have some tools that help me understand what's going on here. When we read, I will keep you from the hour of testing in English, it's easy to assume that keep from means, that phrase, keep from means that Jesus will take them out of the situation altogether. I'll keep you from it, right? That's what we think. But there's only one other place in the New Testament where this particular Greek word combination that we translate as keep from in the English Only one other place in the New Testament where this particular Greek word combination is used, and it just so happens to be from the same author who wrote Revelation. It's in his gospel in chapter 17 where Jesus himself prays this in John 17, 15. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect, keep, protect them from the evil one. Now, that's only a few verses after Jesus told his disciples that they would have tribulation in this world, but they would also have peace in him in this world because he's conquered. So it seems most likely then that Jesus is offering protection through and not removal from this hour of testing that is coming here. He's promising the believers in in the Philadelphian church that he will keep them spiritually safe even though they will need to endure physical suffering. It's what he promised the church in Smyrna. You be faithful to the end. I have you. I have you. Even if they kill you, you have life in me. Remember, he's placed an open door to the kingdom of heaven in front of this church, and no one, not even the powers of hell, nor the evil one himself can close it. That's what it means for Jesus to keep us from the evil one. The hour of testing can't refer only to a period of time at the end of history just before Christ's return or Jesus' promise to the church in Philadelphia here wouldn't make any sense to them. They'd have no reason to take that to heart. He has to be referring to something that they will experience in their lifetime, just like he told the church in Smyrna that the devil was about to throw them into some, uh, some of them into prison to test them. With almost all of these seven churches, Jesus talks about coming soon or coming quickly. And every time he says that, he's not primarily speaking about his final return. We'll get there. We'll get there. Instead, he's referring to a specific way way that he will come and deal with his church. 
these churches in particular. He's coming in the power of the Spirit, either to judge the rebellious or to strengthen the faithful. Here he's promising the Philadelphian church that he will come. Listen, hold on to what you have. I'm coming in the power of the Spirit to strengthen you so that you continue to hold on to what you have, so that you keep enduring. The reference to the whole world here could refer to the entire inhabited earth, or it could also refer to the entire Roman Empire. That's the context in which this letter was written. That's a common phrase that was used in that time to refer to the Roman world, because Rome ruled everything. The phrase probably points to both in, in some sense, since we've already begun to see in these first few chapters of Revelation how Jesus not only calls these first century churches to endure suffering under the Roman government, but every church in every age to ensure, endure suffering in this corrupted world until he returns. The phrase, those who live on the earth, that's exclusive in the book of Revelation referring to unbelievers. Every time you see that phrase, it's referring to unbelievers in the book of Revelation. And what we'll see as we continue through the book is that the trials and tribulations that unfold on the earth that come from God in heaven, they serve a dual purpose. The hearts of the believers will be further strengthened through the testing. They'll be refined by fire. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, right? The strength of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is refined by fire. It's, it's proven. How is it proven? Through the fire, through the testing. That's one purpose. And they will endure. Those believers who are further strengthened through this testing, they will endure to the end and be saved by Christ, while the hearts of unbelievers will be further hardened through the testing. Isn't that what happened to Pharaoh in Exodus? That was testing. It was refining God's people, and it was, it was testing Pharaoh himself, and his heart continued to grow harder. And those who continue to rebel against Jesus to the end, they will be judged by him in the end. Now, that's not to say that the gospel won't transform the hearts of unbelievers between now and Christ's return. We're going to see how the role of the church's gospel witness plays into that as we go through this book. But for now, let's look at what Jesus promises to the church in Philadelphia. He says, to the one who conquers, that is to those who hold on to the king of heaven so that no one takes their crown, Jesus will make them a pillar in the temple of God. This is what Paul calls the church in Ephesians 2. This is the universal church. This church that has an open door to the kingdom of heaven will never go out again, Jesus says. In other words, they'll never be excluded from God's presence. Oh, isn't that comforting to know right now? If you're a believer, Christ has placed an open door in front of you to the kingdom of heaven and nobody can stand in your way. There's no angel there with a flaming sword saying you can't come in. Doors wide open. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ. He'll lead us through it. Jesus will make them a pillar in the temple of God. When the earthquake hit Philadelphia back in 17 AD, there were a bunch of pagan temples that crumbled to the ground. But here Jesus promises that his church, his church with little power, will become a pillar in his temple. A strong pillar. city of Philadelphia may have once been renamed Caesar's new city. 
but this church in Philadelphia will be associated with God's name in God's new city. This is what Jesus is promising. We'll see the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven in chapter 21, but for now, what does it look like for us to put our ears on and listen to what the church is saying to the, what the spirit is saying to the church in Philadelphia? What does it look like for us to listen and obey so that we can receive the blessing of this promise to those who conquer? Well, maybe we need to help to help each other grow less fearful of affliction in this world and more confident of the king who has opened the door to the kingdom of heaven for us. Maybe we need to help each other remember that Jesus loves us. That song is so simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? But we tune it out, don't we? We forget what the reality is that we're singing We need to help each other remember that Jesus loves us. Do you know that's why we gather on Sunday mornings? Do you know that's part of the reason that we come? Because, listen, by the time I get here, I need to be reminded by by Christ's church that Christ is still king. That he loves me in spite of all the stuff I've done to betray him. Yet again. And that he is keeping us. He's got that door in front of us. He has the power to keep us spiritually safe, even in the midst of the worst situations we could ever face in our earthly lives. Isn't that a word we need to hear right now as a church? Maybe we need to remember that he's not only placed an open door to the kingdom of heaven in front of us, but he's also placed an open door to proclaim the gospel of that kingdom to an unbelieving world around us. This is the language Paul uses in Ephesians 4. Pray for me that God may open the door to to us for his word. Maybe we need to be encouraged that even though we're a small church but we have, and have but little power, we're keeping our king's word. We're not denying our king's name. And as we hold on to him, oh, in growing dependence and confidence, he will open the door to his kingdom to others through our gospel witness. What a privilege that would be and that is for us as a church. Let's move on to the last of these seven churches. The church in Laodicea. Verse 14 through 22. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. How does Jesus identify himself to this church? As the amen 
the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. And the church in Laodicea is the only one of these seven churches that Jesus has nothing to commend them for. Nothing good, nothing good to point out in this church. Imagine being in this church and hearing the other six letters, the other six, uh, to, to the other six churches read first. The whole letter of Revelation was a circular letter. These seven letters weren't sent out just individually to those churches. They were sent as a package deal with this letter. Started in Ephesus. They got to read and hear all the other six churches. It went all the way down. Laodicea finally hears all these things, and they might be thinking, well, okay, we're not like perfect. You know, we got some things or whatever. Like, what's Jesus going to say about us? What does he tell you? I find you repulsive. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Laodicea was near the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis, and a man named Epaphras, you may have heard that word, that, that guy, about him before, he worked hard as a minister of gospel to these three cities. Paul mentions him in the letter that he wrote to the Colossians, which is Colossae, and he wanted that letter at the end of Colossians, he says, make sure this one's read in the church of Laodicea, and there's a letter that got written to Laodicea, and have that one read here too. But apparently neither Paul's words or Epaphras' work took root in this church in Laodicea. The city of Colossae had a cold water source, and the city of Hierapolis had hot springs, a hot water source. Now, the cold water was pure and useful for drinking, while the hot water from the springs was useful for healing and cleansing. Sometimes we read this passage and we think, Jesus would rather you be like totally cold to him than just halfway. It's not what he's saying here. Both hot and cold, this is not a scale of your faithfulness to Jesus. Both hot and cold, these waters that these towns had were useful. But, when, but Laodicea didn't have a water source of its own, and so it had to have it piped in from these two cities. And by the time the hot springs got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And by the time the cold water got there, it was contaminated by minerals. The only thing that the water was useful for in Laodicea was for spitting out. It didn't help him with anything else. And Jesus is saying, listen, this church in this city is as useless to me as the water here. Lord, may that never be said of us. This church has become spiritually contaminated. They had poor water. The city had poor water, but it was well known for its successful banking system. It had a thriving medical school. It actually had a famous eye salve, and it had a booming textile trade, a clothing industry. In verse 17, Jesus reveals how the church has become spiritually contaminated by compromising, again, with the idolatrous practices and self-reliance of the city. Throughout the book of Revelation, John uses the terms rich and wealthy to describe those who have given their hearts over to the materialistic and ungodly ways of this world. God used the prophet Hosea to bring an indictment against the people of Israel for this very thing. Hosea 12.8 says, But Ephraim, a.k.a. Israel, thinks how rich I have become, I've made it all myself. In all my earnings, no one can find any iniquity in me and I, that I can be punished for. Ooh, some arrogant words, right? 
Jesus is bringing that same indictment against the church in Laodicea here in verse 17. He says, for you say, I'm rich. Oh, how rich I have become, right? I've become wealthy and I need nothing. Jesus says, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Jesus has found all kinds of iniquity in his church, in this church that the people can be punished for. Notice that he describes their depravity in a way that undercuts every worldly thing that they've been relying on. You see, the banking system can't keep them from being spiritually poor. The medical school can't keep them from being spiritually wretched and pitiful. The ISAV can't keep them from being spiritually blind, and the clothing market can't keep them from being spiritually naked. You think you're good, but you're not. And even though Jesus has nothing to commend in this church, listen, he's the Lord of patient grace. Is he not? He still has compassion for this church. He doesn't turn and walk away. He says, I want to spit you out of my mouth, but you know what's going to come out of my mouth instead? A plea to repent. A plea to repent. He invites them to take note of their spiritual need, to confess that, to acknowledge that, and to repent. This church that thinks they need nothing really needs everything, and what they truly need can only be provided by Christ himself because what they need, rather who they need, is Jesus Christ himself. Their worldly wealth needs to be replaced with gold refined by fire so that they can be spiritually rich. Their worldly clothes need to be replaced with the white clothes of Christ's righteousness so that they can have their shameful nakedness covered. Their worldly eye salve needs to be replaced with the spiritual ointment for their eyes so that they can truly see. But they have no resources of their own to be able to buy these things from Jesus. He says, come buy these from me, but you can't. So I'll give you the currency. You know what that currency is? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he freely offers that in abundance. Jesus may be threatening to spit this church out of his mouth, but he loves this church. That's what he said. And his threat, his threat serves as a rebuke in order to discipline those he loves so that they will be zealous to repent and turn back to him. Jesus doesn't want them to remain useless. He's placed an open door to the kingdom of heaven before the church in Philadelphia, but here the picture is flopped. He says, listen, I'm standing at the door like a master, like a lover, knocking. Won't you let me in? Renew your fellowship with me. That act of opening the door is repentance. It's an acknowledgement that I need the one behind the door to come in. When I come in, I'll eat with you. Back in that day when, when two parties that, that had something between them when they sat down for a meal together, that was an act of reconciliation. Jesus is saying, repent, be reconciled to me. To the one who conquers, that is to those who rely on the riches that Christ himself has to offer instead of relying on what the world has to offer, Jesus will give them the right to sit with him on his throne where they will be truly rich and really need nothing. Really need nothing. They'll be able to quote Psalm 23 and actually mean it. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. 
They'll gain eternal life from the originator of God's creation. They will be fully vindicated by the amen. Let anyone then who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus may be speaking to the churches through the Spirit here, but that doesn't mean that you cannot respond to his words if you are not a follower of Christ. So let's talk to you for a minute this morning. The overwhelming theme in all of these, in all of these letters and in the whole book of Revelation is that we can only conquer in this life is if we entrust ourselves to Jesus. We entrust our lives to him. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, what did he do? He put on flesh. He became a human being. He came into this world and he died on the cross in the place of sinners so that we might truly live. This holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David was buried in a tomb that was sealed shut with a stone, but on the third day, what happened? That stone was gone. Rolled away, the tomb was open, and you know what? Nobody can close what Jesus opens. Nobody when he rose from the grave, the amen was vindicated by the Father to show, to show him to be the faithful and true witness. And now all who believe this witness, this gospel message that he has spoken to us time and time again in his patient grace, when we repent, guess what? We're made new creations by the originator of all things. Jesus is offering you eternal life with him this morning. What he has to offer you is greater than anything this world can offer you. It would be foolish to gain the whole world, this is Jesus' words himself, and yet forfeit your soul. So why not instead turn to Christ and entrust yourself to him by faith? You know what the beauty of the gospel is? Is we can confess I'm wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. But I have something for that. It's me. You'll find everything you need in him if you would only turn and trust him. And I plead with you to do that this morning. As those who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, then what might it look like for us to listen to what this, the spirit, what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea and take it to heart? Well, maybe we need to take a spiritual inventory of our lives. Is there any area of your life where you've grown comfortable enough to tell Jesus that you don't really need him? Now, we might not say that directly, but that's what we are saying when we've come to, to place our security in something or someone other than him. The, a, a real good way to test that is to say, if only I had, and then fill in the blank. Then I would fill in the blank. In what or in whom are you seeking security that only Jesus can provide? Are you piping in the things of the world to the point that you're becoming useless in your gospel witness to the world? The beauty of Christ and his grace is that he invites us to freely admit what he already knows. Did you notice that? Every single church he said, I know your works. I know this about you. We can be honest about the depth of our need for him and honestly confess our need to him. So wherever we are in defiance against him, let's be zealous and repent. And let's trust that Jesus will be faithful to keep his promises to his church. You see, Jesus knows what his church needs in order to conquer, so we should listen to him when he speaks to us, even when what he has to say is hard to hear. Not everything Jesus had to say to these churches is pleasant, but all of it is necessary. It's necessary. 
Jesus knows when we have ears to hear, but we actually are unwilling to listen. He knows when we let things go in one ear and out the other without ever taking those things to heart. He knows that we're prone to tune things out, and so in his patient, abiding grace, he repeats himself over and over again for our sake because he cares about our hearts and he wants to direct them to himself. Blessing doesn't come to us when we tune out what we've already heard. Blessing comes when we listen to what our Lord has to say yet again and take his words to heart. That's how we realize that he's already made us conquerors in him and he will make sure that we conquer to the very end. Don't tune out what Christ has said today. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's keep our ears on. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word and your son and your spirit and your church that we can grow together in dependence upon Jesus and confidence in him. We're grateful that you are patient with us and you speak the same things to us over and over working that deep into our heart by your spirit, making us humbly dependent upon Jesus and conforming us to him. We pray, God, that you would help us to be zealous people, repentance, full of repentance, full of dependence upon Jesus himself, and that you would give us the means through Christ to endure to the end for his glory and our good. We pray these things in his name. Amen.